This is Howard Anderson, news editor at Information Security Media Group. And today we're talking about the issue of what is commercially reasonable security uh, with Dan Mitchell, a featured speaker at our Frauds Summit. Dan represented Patco Construction in the high-profile account takeover dispute. And we thank you for joining us today, Dan. Thanks, Howard. So the Uniform Commercial Code has been adopted in all states in Article 4A, drafted back in 1989, deals with defining how banks need to offer reasonable security to their commercial customers. And I understand that you believe courts are all over the board in terms of how they apply the statute, which you view as out of date. So first, uh, give us a quick uh, refresher course. Describe first very briefly what 4A has to say about security responsibilities of banks and their commercial customers. Sure. Well, you know, Article 4A was drafted back in the late 1980s, and it was an attempt to try to allocate risk as between banks and customers when there was um, an electronic fraud. Bearing in mind, back in the late 1980s, they primarily were looking at people wiring money. And so relatively sophisticated uh, customers wired money. There was not a consistent uniform approach under the law in terms of how to allocate responsibility if there was a loss for an unauthorized uh, uh, wire and uh, the Uniform Commercial Code was an attempt to come up with a uniform way of dealing with those situations. It's, uh, uniform Commercial Code is comprised of different sections that are promulgated by uh, a national organization. They promulgated Article 4A, which they proposed to the states. The states adopted it. And basically what it does is it says if there is a, a, a fraud loss, because someone who's unauthorized has access to a commercial customer's account. In the first instance, a bank is responsible for that, but the bank has an opportunity to shift the risk of loss back to the customer if a couple of things have happened. First of all, the bank and the customer have to have agreed that the bank will authenticate uh, users using a set of security procedures. So theoretically, the bank and the customer need to agree on the security procedures and what they will be. And secondly, those security procedures must be commercially reasonable, as that term is understood uh, under the law. Third, the bank needs to demonstrate that it acted in good faith and followed the security procedures that it agreed upon with its customer. And that's basically how it works. If the bank can demonstrate those things, it shifts the risk of loss back to the customer, even if the, the transaction, in fact, was not authorized by the customer. Okay, so why do we need to change that? Uh, is it out of date? Uh, what specific changes would you like to see? Well, first of all, I think as a general proposition, you know, we're talking about a statute that was enacted in the late 1980s at a time when, you know, the internet itself was in its infancy. And certainly, I think it's fair to say that the drafters back then had no idea what the world would look like in 2013. And they had no idea how prevalent uh, online financial transactions would become. And they had no idea that I would sit here with my iPhone and go into my bank account and perform transactions and transfer money and, and do all kinds of things. So it, I think just on that basis alone, it makes sense to go back and look at the statute and say, are these principles that we've put in place still effective today? You know, do they still work? And, I, and, and look, I, just because something is dated in the law doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad concept, and I'm not suggesting that, because there are plenty of old concepts in the law that we apply just fine. What I'm saying is that taking a look at a statute that was enacted primarily to deal with 
a wire transfer situation and the standards that would have made sense in 1989 and in trying to apply those today results in some problems. For example, one of the prerequisites in the statute to a bank shifting the risk of loss is that it agreed with its customer upon a set of security procedures. That may have been realistic at one time, you know, that a customer, maybe you were a, you know, a commercial customer who was relatively sophisticated and you did wire transfers and so you went in with your bank and you, you talked to your account manager and you said, uh, you know, okay, the account manager maybe brought in their you know, operations person and said, okay, well, here are the security procedures we think make sense. If you want to do these wire transfers, this is what you ought to do. And you looked at them and you said, okay, and you agreed on them. That's not what happens today. Uh, you know, typical commercial customer, they go to their bank, their bank gives them a form or more likely several forms with a lot of verbiage in them. It's like reading, you know, an insurance policy. No one reads them. And maybe those forms describe what the security procedures are. Maybe they don't. Maybe they describe them generally. Very rarely have I ever seen them described specifically. And so the concept right up front that the parties are, are making an informed agreement about what security procedures are going to be used, which is an important prerequisite to, to the way this statute operates, I think it simply doesn't pertain. I don't think it's realistic to think that parties are going to sit down and talk about this. And from the bank's perspective on things, they may not want to talk about it. I mean, there may be some things that they don't want to put in an agreement. You know, here's, here are the security procedures we're going to use, and they get very specific about exactly what they do and how they do it. That might be a roadmap to, to, you know, to fraudsters who, who might you know, use that information in a negative way. So my point is maybe one thing we ought to do I mean, one thing we ought to do is step back and say, should we have a requirement in the first instance that the parties sit down and agree on a set of security procedures? If so, then you know, banks and customers both need to be doing more you know, to understand what those are as a starting proposition. And secondly, I would say along those related to that, but, but you know, on a slightly different point as well, I think it's unrealistic given the sophistication of what's happening out there today to think that the average commercial customer is going to have any real appreciation of the threats and about how to deal with them. They're just not sophisticated enough. I mean, you know, first of all, most, most small businesses, like in my state in Maine, you know, I represented Patco Construction in the case. Patco Construction was, by national standards, a very small company. And you know, they didn't have a full-time IT person. You know, they were in the construction business. I mean, what do they know about, uh, about these kinds of threats? You know, to, to think that they're going to sit down in an informed way, um, look at security procedures and decide whether they, they uh, work for them with respect to the, to the things that are going, out, gone, going on out there in the world today uh, is, I think, unrealistic. The average customer just isn't that sophisticated. So uh, you know, I think we ought to step back and look at whether we think it makes sense to have a regime that requires an, a, an agreement between bank and customer about uh, security procedures and how much responsibility we place on the customer to uh, uh, participate in that decision. So how much more detailed does Article 4A need to be to do the job better in the modern world, do you think? Well, the problem is, you know, it's impossible to write a statute that accounts for everything that's going to happen. And I'm not suggesting that that's what needs to happen. I mean, I'm not suggesting that you know, the statute just needs to be expanded to try to look at every possible thing that could happen and account for it. That's not, my, that's not what I'm suggesting. If we looked at today, in 2013, we looked at 
um, the threat landscape and what what is going on in the commercial world, we could come up with some, probably some specific uh, areas where maybe the statute could get more specific uh, in terms of uh, you know particular types of activity and the way it should be approached. But you know, I'm not suggesting that 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 is as important as just reevaluating this this question fundamental question of whether there needs to be an agreement in place between the customer and the bank as to specific types of security procedures that are going to get used um, and, and requiring a customer to participate in that discussion essentially. Maybe one way to do it would be to simply say, uh, look, we're not going to require that, that in the first instance that there be that such an agreement. We'll allow the bank to shift the risk of loss if it can demonstrate that it's got commercially reasonable security procedures and that it's provided some level of information to the customer about what those are. Not necessarily an agreement, because in legal parlance, an agreement is an important thing. Uh, and that's different than simply a bank informing, a, providing information to a customer. Should the code do more to define what's commercially reasonable security? You know, what the code does now, I think, is, is not bad in that area. You know, it says primarily that... that a bank needs to look at what its customer is doing, look at the types of transactions it engages in, look at what other similarly situated banks are doing, look at any preferences, specific preferences that have been expressed by the customer. And so, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I see, a, uh, you know, a lot of deficiencies there necessarily. And again, you know, in our legal system, there are plenty of concepts that we express generally in, in you know, as a starting proposition in the law and then they get fleshed out more specifically by courts in specific situations. And I don't think that's problematic. So in the answer, short answer to your question, I would lean towards saying no, probably not, that it's necessary that the court get much more specific about what's commercially reasonable. Because that is going to change um, in, in different situations. So what's the main fix, then, just to summarize, that you'd like to say? For, for my purposes, the main fix is to do away with this uh, artificial notion that the bank and the customer, in the first instance, at the at the front end of this, sit down and come to some kind of an agreement as to what the security procedures are, uh, and also to the extent that implies that commercial customers look. It, the reason why there's a difference between the way we treat commercial customers and the way we treat consumers is because, in, and this is not just in this area of the law, but in other areas of the law, there is a supposition in the law that commercial customers are more sophisticated. They're more able to protect themselves, and consumers are less sophisticated, and they need more protection. And that's a primary basis on, on uh, uh, for the distinction between commercial customers and consumer customers. And the notion, though, today that a, a small mom-and-pop commercial customer, even a larger commercial customer for that matter, is going to understand the threats that are out there and be able to in an informed way, participate in structuring the security procedures that are going to be on their account, I don't think is realistic. So I would say, on the front end, perhaps do away with the requirement that there needs to be an agreement. Do away with the implicit requirement that the customer participates in deciding what those procedures are going to be. Instead, have a system in which you know, the bank has to have a set of commercially reasonable security procedures. It should take into account the same factors, the wishes of the customer expressed to the bank the circumstances of the customer known to the bank, what other banks are doing in similarly situated situ in, in similar situations, and a requirement, perhaps, that the bank inform the customer, not, not that the bank and the customer have an agreement, but that the bank inform the customer of what's going on, 
Um, if the customer is not comfortable with it, the customer can still do their banking somewhere else. But then, really, you know, put the primary burden in the first instance on the bank to provide commercially reasonable security procedures, which is really where it belongs. And frankly, the banks are in a much better position to know what those are. And do away with this exercise that we go through in these cases where you're looking at, well, did the bank and the customer have an agreement up front about the use of particular security procedures? And you know, did they follow the agreement? It's a fiction that really, in maybe in 1989, made some sense because people really did it. But in 2013, in the online banking environment, it doesn't make sense. And then real quickly, summarize for us how the Uniform Commercial Code gets changed. What's the procedure? The, the, the promulgators of the Uniform Commercial Code, the, the, the Uniform Law Commission, um, and the, um, uh, the, the um, uh, American law um, uh, reporter, reporters who do this uh, basically are legal professionals, professors, uh, folks from around the country who are expert in different areas, and they meet every few years. Uh, I don't know how often the Article 4A people um, meet or, or have met, and they discuss proposed changes, and if there's enough momentum to make a change, they'll have a meeting and they will actually issue some proposed changes. What happens with those simply is those become available to the states to either enact or not enact as they choose. And by the way, I mean states today, any state can change its law anytime it wants to. The theory behind the Uniform Commercial Code, though, is that we want to maintain, maintain as much uniformity as possible among the states, in particular areas of the commercial law, because it makes it easier for people to do business from state to state. And, re and obviously, you know, nowadays, every, that's what we do. We do interstate business. But in any state right now, I mean, Maine could go to New York, or New Jersey, we're in New Jersey today. New Jersey, the legislature tomorrow could take up a bill and say, we think that agreement requirement doesn't make sense. We're going to take that out. But that typically is not the way it works. Typically, states are reactive in this, in this area. They will wait for the Uniform Laws Commission to, to promulgate uh, you know, a set of changes. And then, usually, there is a period of several years of debate about whether they ought to implement the changes, whether they make sense. It's a slow process. I have no, I could not tell you, as I say right now, per, from based on any personal knowledge, whether uh, there's been any discussion, you know, uh, about about changing it, um, what activities taken place. I don't, I don't think there's been any. I know there haven't formally been any revisions proposed. I don't know if there's been any higher level discussion about changing it. But, uh, but that it's a slow process. It would take several years. Well, thanks very much, Dan. Absolutely. Happy to help. Uh, we've been talking today with uh, Attorney Dan Mitchell for Information Security Media Group. I'm Howard Anderson.